This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that there was a debate raging in and among the four churches in Galatia. It was a theological debate of massive proportion. If you're new to the church, you probably know that the church is prone to argue You may know that unfortunately, all too often, the church enjoys and lives off of and thrives on conflict. And for that reason, the church often fights and fights to the death over very worthless things. But I need you to know that when I use the word debate, this is the word used in Acts 15, and this is a debate that was very much worth it for the Apostle Paul. This is a worthwhile debate. This is a topic worth fighting for. The raging debate was in regards to justification. Justification, as we said last week, is the declaration of righteousness. It's also the declaration of what I call all rightness. In the Roman court system, after hearing evidence and arguments, the judge would either condemn, that is, declare guilty, or the judge would justify, that is, declare righteous, the one on trial. And those who were justified were embraced by the judge, literally embraced by the judge and honored by the community. Theologically, biblically, to justify is for God to declare you or me righteous. For, for God to not only say to us, I see you as one who's lived a righteous life, but, but you're all right with me. My relationship with you is one of peace and blessing and it can never be changed. Justification is God, for, is God looking any one of us in the eye and he says to us, I'm cool with you. You're valuable, you're valuable to me. I, I accept you. God says, I will never expel you from my presence. And God says, when you try to walk or run away from my presence, I will never leave you. I will always do what is best for you. Always. You're righteous and we're all right. So that's justification. The debate in Galatia was not about justification, whether or not God would ever do that, but it was how God would ever do that. How is one justified by God? How does one get to the place where they hear from God, you're righteous and we're all right. Come into my presence. I love you. I bless you. 
You're my child. And so our passage today is an incredible summary of that raging debate. And in our passage, Paul's gonna tell us his proposition on how we're justified, and he's gonna reference his opponent's proposition on how uh, they think uh, a human is justified. Also, not only is Paul gonna give his objection to his opponent's view, uh, you can infer from the passage what his opponent's objection was to his view. Finally, we're gonna see Paul's rebuttal to the objection of his opponent to his proposition. And even if you didn't do debate in high school, I think you'll eventually understand. If you did debate, I may have used all those terms incorrectly. (laughs) For that, I apologize. The web was too confusing in trying to figure that out. So I I want us to see in this passage the two propositions, the two objections, and the one rebuttal. First, the two propositions. If you would look in verse 16. Okay, the Apostle Paul in verse 16 not only sets forth his proposition on how one is justified by God, but he references and rejects his opponent's proposition on on how. Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So the false teachers, uh, the circumcision party, uh, those called Judaizers, uh, those called believers who believe to the party of the Pharisees in Acts 15, this is their proposition on justification. A human uh, does works of the law. But Paul goes on. That's not how a person is justified, but a person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. So there's Paul's proposition. And we spent all of last week looking at verse 16, and I'm not gonna go through it much again today at all, but I'm gonna simply say this. Paul's opponent's answer to the question of how is works of the law. How do I get a just God to justify me? I have to do righteous to be righteous. And Paul, on the other hand, argues this. No one will be justified by their own works of the law. But anyone justified by God and before God will be so completely and utterly through faith in Jesus Christ, through believing into Jesus. Paul's gospel, Paul's sermon, Paul's proposition is this. Jesus was God in the flesh. After living a perfect and beautiful life, a life deserving of justification, Jesus did not straight away enter into God's presence and enjoy God's embrace and enjoy the blessings of justification. But Jesus first went to the cross. Jesus first was cursed and condemned in our place. At the cross, Jesus became sin for us so that we could become his righteousness and his all rightness, his blessed and accepted and beloved place with the Father is given to us when he is cursed and sent away and hated. The circumcision party said you have to earn it. Paul said you can only receive it. The false teacher said, your works to some degree merit justification. Paul said, Christ's life merits our justification and we receive this through faith in Jesus Christ. The false teacher said, effort, works, obedience. Paul responded, grace, mercy, faith. I want you to listen very carefully. I'm actually gonna put three sub points up on the screen, but I want you to listen to this very carefully. The false teacher said, you have to do it to be it. You have to do righteous to be declared righteous. But Paul said, no, in fact, you can't do it, but you can be it without doing it. 
all right? So Martin Luther, if you're a student of theology, you know that he had this very famous Latin phrase that summarized Paul's proposition from verses 15 and 16. And this phrase is horribly frustrating to a simplistic legalist because it's so apparently illogical, but only illogical until you understand the gospel and, this, and then it becomes beautifully clear. Luther said this, simul justus et peccator. Simul is where we get our word simultaneous. At the same time, Eustace is righteous. Et is an. Peccator is sinner. Christians in the gospel are at the same time righteous and sinner. How, how is that not illogical? Because the great exchange of the cross makes it beautiful. Jesus at the cross, although righteous, chose to be declared a sinner in our place so that we, all those sinners, can choose to be declared righteous in his place. And so you see, for Paul's opponents, it was this either or, it was binary. They were too simplistic. It was either zero or one, yes or no, righteous or sinner. And you can actually see this in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. This is, in our English translations, a strange verse to read. In this context, Paul is hammering Peter uh, for being a racist and one who is believing he is elite towards Gentiles. And then Paul uh, writes this, uh, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And so while those two, two statements are true, uh, they were Jews by birth and they were not Gentile sinners, it's still really awkward to hear Paul write that. And so the question is, what is up with that? Well, first, let me tell you what Paul's not saying. He can't be saying uh, that Peter and himself are not sinners. Because if you look at verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18, Paul says over and over and implies over and over that he and Peter are sinners. Further, you can know from the first word in verse 16 that Paul actually disagrees with the entire statement of verse 15. This conjunction that begins verse 16 is much stronger than our English word yet. The word should probably be translated on the contrary. The nicest way to translate this word is rather. And so most commentators will tell you that Paul is using his opponent's words at this point in verse 15, and then he's disagreeing with them in verse 16. The commentators would tell us to read it this way. Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners? On the contrary, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. You see, for the circumcision party, you were either righteous or you were a sinner. But to Paul, some people are both. Paul believed that all of us were sinners, but some of us were righteous. To Paul, all Jews by birth were sinners, but some of them were righteous by faith in Jesus. He and Peter uh, were in that camp. To Paul, all Gentiles were sinners, but some were also righteous by faith in Jesus. Titus and those in Galatia were in that camp. And so here's how you can know that you're getting the gospel out of your head and into your heart. Here's how you can know that you're getting the gospel sort of off the whiteboard, we'll say, and into your shoes. You're believing the gospel if you're growing in both humility and confidence at the same time. You can know that you're beginning to take this gospel from the whiteboard and put it into your heart and into your shoes if you're growing in both humility and in confidence at the same time. Listen to this. Christians, believers, are deeply humbled by the fact that they blew it so bad that only the death of God for them could save them and rescue them. 
But at the same time, Christians are confident at the very core of their being because God did love them so much that he chose to die for them. You see, you're beginning to believe, and I'm beginning to believe, and not just understand, we're beginning to believe Paul's proposition on justification uh, when we're growing in both of these realities. But think about the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin would tell us that our functional theology is legalism, that our functional theology is works righteousness, that we functionally believe that we're justified by works of the law if we're ever proud in those times that we obey, And if we're ever thinking that we're worthless or lacking confidence before God whenever we disobey. You see, Paul would say, simul justus et peccator. You can be both confident and humble at the exact same time. And so in this debate on how one is justified, those are the two propositions, those are the two arguments. But like any good debate, uh, they're not just propositions being put out there. There are objections made to the opponent's propositions. So second for today, uh, the two objections uh, to the propositions. So, so Paul directly states his, op- his opposition uh, to the Pharisees in verse 21. And then we can infer from his uh, comments in verse 17 what the Pharisees thought of his Proposition. So first, let's look down at verse 21. This is Paul's objection to the false teacher's proposition uh, as it was taught in Galatia. This is what Paul says, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness or justification, for if justification were through the law, that's his opponent's position, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And, and Paul would say to his opponent, If anyone truly holds your position, they find themselves in the unfortunate place of nullifying God's grace. They find themselves in the unfortunate place of calling the the cross of Christ uh, absolutely needless. I mean, look at the absolute language that Paul is using here. He, He is saying this. If you believe that a human's work has anything to do with justification, you nullify, reject, refuse, ignore, make invalid all of God's grace. He doesn't say you make less of God's grace or you diminish God's grace to the extent that you believe your works are involved in your justification. We're gonna put this on the screen behind me if we haven't already. He says, if you add any human merit to justification other than the merit of Jesus Christ, you utterly nullify all of God's grace in the equation. Now think about this. Paul's opponents and their theology, they did not reject Jesus outright. We know from Acts 15, we know from Galatians 1 and 2, we know from Philippians 3, Paul's opponents would have said, sure, God's grace, sure, Jesus Christ, sure, Jesus dead, sure, Jesus even risen, sure, these are part of your justification. But then they would say, you also have to do this and you have to promise to do these if you wanna be justified. We have said this over and over. For Paul's opponents, it was grace plus something. For Paul's opponents, it was Jesus plus some sort of promise about the future. And Paul said, just think about what we're saying. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means unearned blessing. Paul says to add any merit to it doesn't diminish it, it nullifies it. It's all or nothing. And so again, if you add one ounce of cyanide to your favorite mixed drink or your favorite health smoothie, you don't make it 5% less enjoyable. You make it 100% not enjoyable. Regardless of the equation, 
If you make justification based on anything, any action in the past, any action in the present, any promise for the future, if you add anything to grace, if you add anything to Jesus, you nullify grace and you make Jesus' beautiful death pointless and purposeless and needless. And Paul's saying, I hear your proposition. Here's my objection to said proposition. So that's Paul's objection, but you can also see how the Pharisees were objecting to Paul's theology if you, if you listen closely to verse 17. Look with me at verse 17. Paul writes, but if in, our, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, both of those statements are true, If those are both true, is Christ then a servant of sin? See see what Paul's doing in verse 17? He's quoting their objection to his proposition. The circumcision party said that Paul's theology made Jesus Christ into a servant of sin. The false teachers accused Paul of not honoring Christ with his gospel, but in fact dishonoring Christ in his gospel. The false teachers said, if you preach all grace... If you say Jesus' work is completely sufficient, what's gonna happen is that people are gonna take you up on that offer and they're not gonna worry about sin. Paul, uh, the circumcision party, the opposition to Paul, the Pharisees, uh, people uh, are gonna hear that message and they're gonna send more. They're not gonna send less. And they say to Paul, Paul, preaching Jesus this way, you actually make Jesus a servant or a deacon or a minister or a contributor or a promoter, a distributor, a a one who aids and abets sin and lawlessness. Paul, your theology will make people more unloving than they were before. If you haven't thought this about the gospel yet, you haven't heard how radical the gospel is. This is actually a very thoughtful objection to Paul's theology. Paul, if you tell people that what qualifies them for the gospel is their sin, they're gonna sin more. Paul, if you, if you preach all grace and not just mainly grace, people are gonna use Jesus as this get out of free, uh, jail free card. People, people are gonna think of Jesus and his death as this loophole. Paul, our kids are gonna do whatever they want with whoever they want to whomever they want on Saturday night and they're just gonna check in on Sunday morning to make sure the gospel is still true if you say that it's 100% grace and no merit. Paul, is that really what you want? Paul, don't we wanna add a little bit of works to the grace so they're a little scared of God and a little scared of hell? Wouldn't a little fear of God and hell be good for them? If they thought that they might be able to lose their salvation, wouldn't they be more obedient? Paul, we know that you're a good-hearted man and we know that you mean the best, but your proposition makes Jesus a servant of sin. Paul, if people in seeking to be justified by Jesus discover that they're sinners and still justified, uh, there will be in them no motivation to stop the sinning. This is the doom of society. Paul, with your theology, people are gonna do what they wanna do and not go to hell for it. To use theological terms, Paul, we may be a little legalistic in our proposition, but Paul, you're very licentious in yours. With your theology, people are gonna utterly disregard any and every law. And Paul says, does our theology, like they say, make Christ a servant of sin? Look at the end of verse 17. Certainly not. 
Literally, may it never be. Okay, so Paul says, absolutely not. And then he gives his rebuttal to that in verses 18 through 20. And Paul is gonna say to us, if you understand the depth and the breadth of my gospel, you will see that it is utterly impossible to say that Christ is a servant of sin, of sin in the lives of those who truly believe. In fact, Paul's gonna say the exact opposite is true. So now remember, Paul is writing to the Galatians who are caught in the middle of this raging debate between Paul and the circumcision party. And in our text, Paul is telling the folks in Galatians of a time when Peter and Barnabas and others got caught in the middle of this raging debate and in fact didn't get caught in the middle. They actually sided with the opponents for a while. And so our text is not a transcript of the actual debate between the two sides, but our text provides this incredible summary of that debate. The two propositions are clearly stated in verse 16. Uh, both sides had their objections. Paul's clearly stated in verse 21, the false teachers implied in verse 17. We have no idea what their rebuttal was to Paul's objection, but Paul gives us these three verses on his rebuttal to their objection. Now we're gonna begin to look at this this week. I actually want to take all of next week and unpack verses 18 through 20. I wanna study them in detail. Verse 20, in verse 20 in particular, it is a glorious verse. I do not want us to go too fast. I want us to unpack it and enjoy it. But for now, I wanna give us a one-line summary of Paul's rebuttal for us to chew on this week and for us to come back and consider next week. And here it is. To Paul, the idea that Christ is a servant of sin, the, the idea that a person can sin more after being justified and after being saved, that idea is absolutely crazy to Paul because in Paul's gospel, listen closely, the good news is not just who Jesus is for you, the good news is who Jesus is in you. Look at the screen. Paul's gospel, Paul's good news Paul's salvation, not just Christ for me, but also Christ in me. Look at the personal pronouns in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh that is in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at it in verse 20. Not just Christ for me, past tense, but Christ in me, present tense. Here's why Paul says certainly not. Here's why he says may it never be. Because to us, the gospel might be this set of ideas or beliefs that we check back into uh, on Sundays after doing whatever we want on Saturdays. But to Paul, the gospel is a personal God saving us. It is a personal God saving us, not just from the penalty of the sin for all that we did on the proverbial Saturday night. It's God increasingly saving us from the powerful desire to do it again on Saturday night. Paul, Paul is saying, if you're truly a Christian, if you truly believe the gospel, Jesus is not just someone to check in with on Sundays to have your get, get out of jail free card stamped for the week. Jesus is not this weak savior who died for your sins and then begs you as you walk out the door to try and do a little bit better this week. Jesus is a savior who moves into the very core of your life and into the very core of your actual being. Jesus goes with us wherever we go. He is not this little bobblehead Jesus. Okay, Jesus, 
I'm going to my car now. I'm going to leave you here at the connect table. I'll see you next week when I come back to church if I'm able to make it to church. Jesus doesn't stand at the connect table and, and say to you, okay, I know you can do it. Try and be grateful this week. Try and be faithful this week. I'll see you next week. Please come back next week. Please, please, please come back next week. Good luck. Paul says Jesus is in you. And he goes wherever you go. And Paul has incredible news. Jesus is more powerful than you. That's good news. The only way to accuse Paul of being licentious is to think that his gospel is only Jesus for you. If the gospel is only the end of verse 20, Jesus dying for me and for my sin, then it's possible to think that I can leave Jesus at the door of the church on Sunday. It's possible to think that I can go to college and backslide and leave Jesus at mama's house for a few years. But Paul's gospel is this. He died for your sins so he can live inside of you. And now with Jesus inside of you, you're not the man or the woman you used to be. Jesus is not a servant of sin. He's a minister and provider of and producer of and bearer of righteousness and love. In Paul's gospel, you don't have to get better because of who Jesus is for you, but in Paul's gospel, you will get better because of who Jesus is in you. Listen very carefully. As we age in the gospel, as we grow in the Christian walk, we see more and more of our sin and we see the depths of our sin like never before. And the effect of that visual and of that sight is that we see ourselves as bigger sinners now than we saw ourselves as in the past. Uh, to say it differently, uh, if you were to ask me how big of a sinner are you when I was converted, I would tell you a four out of 10. If you were to say to me, how big of a sinner are you now? I would say a seven out of 10. My understanding of my sin is far greater. The depths of my sin is more easily seen. I think of myself like Paul as the chief of sinners. But the Bible is clear. Because Christ is in you, you're getting better each and every day. If not, you're not a Christian. You see, this is the brilliance of God. Each and every day, God shows us a little more of our sin. He shows us the depth of our sin. He runs us into it and shows us the grotesqueness of it. But he does that to keep us humble. He does that to keep us grateful. He does that to keep us running to the cross. He does that to keep us believing in who Jesus is for us. If all he let us see was our growth, we'd eventually stop needing Jesus. But all the while, Jesus is in us and we're actually getting better. We are more and more living the life of Jesus Christ from the heart. We're gonna talk about this more next week. But listen to these statements. I did many horrific, this is me, I'm speaking for myself. I did many horrific things prior to my conversion. I've done horrific things since my conversion. I'm still capable of doing horrific things. I will do horrific things until the day I die. But I am doing less horrific things than ever before. And at the same time, I am more horrified by my sin than ever before. Both are true. Today, because of the deepening view of my sin, I'm more desperate for who Jesus is for me than I was 20 years ago. And as I humbly cling to who Jesus is for me, the power of who Jesus is in me is unleashed. And 
while I see myself as the largest sinner ever, I'm less sinful than I used to be. Both humble and confident. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you don't just die for our sins and leave us in that wretched place of sinfulness, but that you move into us and begin to renew and revive and bring back to life and bring back to love our very hearts. We thank you, Jesus, that the scope of the gospel is not just your death for us, but your life in us by the Holy Spirit. God, there is mysterious parts to this teaching, but we pray that you would help us more understand what this means, that you're in us that your spirit enlivens us and empowers us and guides us and propels us. God, we pray this week as we think about this and next week as we unpack this, that you would show us these truths and that you would uh, activate these truths in our hearts and lives. Uh, Jesus, we again thank you for this glorious gospel. Help us to see it and believe it. In your name we pray.